Return to the Word is made possible by faithful supporters like you. Find out more at returntotheword.com. Welcome to another edition of Return to the Word Radio with Bible teacher Mark Fontecchio. Advancing the message of God's amazing grace through the teaching of God's Word. And now with today's message, here is our teacher. Much has been said about the man in the life, President Abraham Lincoln, but if you scan through his words in history, his statements that he made during public life, it actually shows that President Lincoln went through some very, very dark days. Consider at the start of the war between the states, Lincoln, he was very resolute. He was a visionary. You might remember from history class that at his first inaugural address on March the 4th of 1861, he said these words. He said, the mystic cords of memory stretching from every battlefield and patriot grave to every living heart and hearthstone all over this broad land will yet swell the course of the Union. And then things changed a little bit. A little over a year into the war on June 28 of 1862, his rhetoric was tempered a little bit, but still firm, still uncompromising. And at that time, he said, I expect to maintain this contest until successful or until I die or am conquered. But then the true darkness in his life began to fall. After a devastating defeat at Manassas in Virginia, Lincoln began to first start to worry, and then he started to actually doubt his cause. He started to doubt what he was doing for the country. And he moaned the following words in August of 1862. He said, well, we are whipped again. I am afraid. What shall we do? The bottom is out of the tub. The bottom is out of the tub. And then the next several months and years for Lincoln, they were lived in this near constant face-shaking darkness and despair. December 1862, after defeat at Fredericksburg, his words, if there is a worse place than hell, I'm in it. Then May of 1863, after defeat at Chancellorsville, he says, my God, my God, what will the country say? 1864, this war is eating my life out. I have a strong impression that I shall not live to see the end. And then in the darkness, there was a flicker of hope. There was a little bit of hope that came in as it burst into flame and union victories began turning the tide of the Civil War. And we could see Lincoln's spirits fill and lift. Once again, his rhetoric begins to soar in his words to reach resolutely toward his vision of one United States of America. In March of 1865, about a month before Lee's surrender, Lincoln is able to regather his faith and speak the following words that you might remember. With malice toward none, with charity for all, with firmness in the right, as God gives, let us strive on to finish the work we are in to bind up the nation's wounds. And then finally, less than two weeks before his death, on April the 3rd of 1865, President Lincoln proclaimed the end of his trials. He said, thank God that I live to see this. It seems to me that I have been dreaming a horrid dream for four years, and now, and now that nightmare is gone. I think of Lincoln 
in his words when we come to Hebrews chapter 12, because the Christians in Hebrews were living in some of their own dark times, their own dark days. Persecution had come. Suffering for Jesus Christ had shown up on their doorstep. I think of Lincoln and some of his words when I think of some of the dark times that believers in Jesus Christ go through. Financial problems, discouragement, doubts, brokenness, mistakes of the past, regret, shame, depression. You see, the author of Hebrews, he compares our struggles to a race, telling us that a day will come when the nightmare is over. But it may not come on this side of glory. And so the question before us is, how do we run the great race that God has set before us? How do you win that race? How do you finish your life well? If you have your Bible, I invite you to turn with me to Hebrews chapter 12, where the Bible shows us how to run the great race of life that is set before us. Verse 1 begins with a powerful verse. Therefore, we also, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us lay aside every weight and the sin which so easily ensnares us. And let us run with endurance the race that is set before us. The depth of these words should inspire you. The depth of these words in this text should inspire you in your faith. The text is telling us to run with endurance the race that is laid out before us. Now, watch the wording very carefully. God lays out a specific race for every single believer. Your race is not my race, and my race is not your race. Every believer in Jesus Christ has a unique race to run in life. And I think one of the greatest struggles many believers have is that they want to set their own race. They want to be God. They want to set God's race for themselves. They want God to save them, but they don't want to trust God with the direction of their life. And guess what, friends? I'm sorry, but that's not faith, is it? That's not faith. God does not call every believer to do the same thing in life, but he does call every believer to persevere, to finish their race well. Think of Judas. Let's think of him for just a second. I believe the evidence of the Bible shows that he was not a believer in Christ. But he started well, didn't he? He heard Jesus teach. He went out two by two with the other disciples. He even healed the sick. He casted out demons. He did all sorts of things. Judas did everything that the other disciples did. But in the end, he betrayed Jesus. And that's how everybody remembers him. That is how everybody 2,000 years later still remembers this man. And the principle is this, how you end your life is absolutely critical because that defines everything that has gone before. John R.W. Stott, some of you know the name, a famous theologian. He died in 2011, and personally, I think some of his theology left a lot to be desired, but some of his last words in life were very, very powerful. Three weeks before he died, he was asked by a friend how to pray for him. And lying on his back in a weakened condition and barely able even to speak, he asked this, pray that I will be faithful to Jesus until my last breath. See, I wish this was the mindset in the church of Jesus Christ today. So how do we do this? How do you remain faithful until your last breath? How do you run this great race set before us? 
Well, you start by learning from the witness of those who have walked by faith in the past. Or as Hebrews tells it to us, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses. Study the men and women of faith who have gone before. Let their lives instruct you and inspire you to remain faithful to Jesus Christ, even when life gets hard. But let's talk about this for a second this morning. Let's take some time to slow down and talk about this great cloud of witnesses because this is interesting stuff. Now, I'm going to say this. I would say that these are not spectators in the stands watching us run the race. These are the men and women of faith in Hebrews chapter 11 who walked by faith. And that's why the text starts with therefore, connecting us back to the text before, connecting us back to chapter 11. These are the people of faith who bear witness to the grace and power of God which sustained them in life. How they lived their lives bore witness to their faith in God. And the people of faith in Hebrews 11 are meant to inspire us. It's there for a reason. It's meant to inspire us to run the race to finish well. Learn from them. People like Noah, Abraham, and Moses. They're just people like us, but they depended on God to bring them through some very difficult times. And they finished well. But are they watching us now? Did you hear the question? But are they watching us now? See, that's the question about this verse people have asked for hundreds and hundreds of years. Now, here's my short answer. I don't think so. That's my short answer. I don't think so. The text says a cloud of witnesses because they are without resurrected bodies. When do the resurrected bodies come? The resurrected bodies won't come for these Old Testament saints until the second coming of Jesus Christ. Here is why I don't think this means they are watching us. First, there is no other verse in the Bible that says our loved ones, after they die, can actually look down on us. There's not one other verse that tells us this. So if the Bible does teach this, this is actually the only spot. But you hear this all the time, don't you? That when a loved one dies, we can take comfort. Why? Because they're looking down from heaven and they're smiling upon us. That they're up in heaven cheering for us. And I'm sorry, but this text is not really about Aunt Betty who died. This is not about your family member. This is about the context of Hebrews 11, the saints who live by faith from the Old Testament. And our comfort, here's the principle, and grab this. Our comfort does not come by knowing members of our family are watching us because we don't know for sure whether they can or not. But instead, our comfort comes from knowing that our loved ones can see Jesus Christ. Amen? And one day we will see Christ with them never to be separated again. But second, the word for witness, it is never used in the New Testament to refer to spectators. Never once. This word is found all throughout chapter 11, referring to the testimony of the saints who died when they were willing to die for the truth of God, telling us that when they died, they left behind a testimony of faith. But now, let me just backtrack for a second. Let me open that door just for a second and tell you that I will say this. It's unlikely, but I would also say it's possible that this means in verse 1 that the saints of old can see us. Because a witness does imply the idea that someone is a spectator. Think of 1 Timothy chapter 6, verse 12, where it says this. 
Fight the good fight of faith. Lay hold on eternal life to which you were also called and have confessed the good confession in what? The presence of many witnesses. You see, in back in Hebrews 12, we've been given this picture of a race, an amphitheater that has rows and rows of spectators, leaving us to wonder if the saints are actually watching us, leaving us to wonder if the saints who go before finish their marathon at their death, and then they come around and stand on the side of the track and watch us. That's kind of the picture. And if that is the picture, we are supposed to understand. If that is actually the intended meaning of God's word, Hebrews would be telling us this. It is that like the saints who have gone before are telling us, hang in there, trust God because we made it. We remain faithful to Jesus Christ and you can too. Now that is a very encouraging thought. I'll give you that. You wrestle with it on your own. Good men disagree on how far to take this. But I really do think personally that the intended meeting is not that they're looking at us and how we live. I think it's that we're to look at them and how they walked and lived by faith. Learn from the testimony of those who have gone before. They demonstrated with their lives the sufficiency of the faith. Now look at the next part of the verse. Again, very interesting. Let us lay aside every weight. Most races back in that day were run naked, naked, without any clothes. They would actually cast off, yes, he said naked from the pulpit. They would cast off their clothes and they would shed any extra weight that would hold them back. Shed those things that slow you down and trip you up. Get rid of anything that keeps you from doing your best. Throw it off like a robe or a heavy coat. Get rid of anything that is weighing you down. You know, some runners today, they train with weights tied to their ankles. But when they get ready to run a race, what do they do? They have to actually take those off. They remove those weights. For us, what could this be in our Christian life? Well, it could be a lot of things. It could be a friend that you are a little too close to that is hurting your walk with Jesus Christ. It could be a habit in your life, a hobby. It could even be your job. It could be work. There are things in our lives that are not always a sin, but there are things that hold us back, slow us down in running for Jesus Christ. And the author of Hebrews is saying, get rid of it. In June of 2017, 33-year-old rock climber Alex Honnold, he scaled El Capitan. That's a 3,000-foot granite rock in Yosemite National Park. And it's considered by many to be the most challenging wall in the world. Well, Alex was the first person to make the climb free solo. And what that means, no equipment, no ropes, no, no backup, nothing. And at one point, hanging from just his thumbs, 1,000 feet above the ground. Now, he lives most of the year out of a van, which he calls an intentional choice to prioritize your vocation in life. And Alex tells people, he says, I want to climb in the best places in the entire world, and so that's my focus. So I'm willing to give up having stability, having a shower, having whatever in order to climb the way that I want. And then he goes on to say this and listen, I am probably more intentional with the way I live my life than virtually anybody. I have made clear choices about what I find value in, what risks I'm willing to take, and I'm doing exactly what I love to do. 
And then he said, it's very easy for someone sitting on the couch at home to condemn it, call it crazy and call it stupid, but I can justify all of my choices. And then he asks, can you say the same about your life? And just to be honest, real honest, I don't think most Christians today can. We don't live like people of faith. We have become entangled with the world, always buying bigger, always buying more, always losing our focus in life. Social media is a plague upon our society. Social media takes time away from people, from real relationships with real people, especially our families. If you take on financial debt as a family, it hurts your ability to support the church. It hurts your ability to support missions. Too many activities on your calendar, sports, school events, you name it, it takes away from the important things like reading your Bible, praying, sharing your faith, helping serve Jesus Christ here. These are some of the weights that hold us down, that slow you down, that wear you out in life. It's not always sin that keeps you from running the race. So watch out for anything that keeps you from running for Jesus Christ. And then... Remove the doubt and the unbelief. Verse 1 continues. Lay aside the sin which so easily ensnares us. This is the sin that is the closest to us. It ensnares us. It trips us up. And notice how the New King James says the sin. The definite article is there, meaning there's a particular sin that the author has in mind. And in the context, I believe that the particular sin is the sin of unbelief because the entire last chapter was all about this faith. And when you have faith, you can be certain of what others cannot be certain of. You can see in life what others cannot see. You can know what others cannot know. And when you believe God, you can finish your race well. But what happens when a believer does not walk by faith? When a Christian starts to doubt God's word? Well, you get tripped up in life, don't you? Doubt begins to ensnare you. And so you stop going forward. You stop growing in your faith. And these doubts come into your life because why? Well, first, we love money, so it makes it harder to give. These doubts come in because we get so attached to the world that it makes it hard to forsake this world. Doubts creep in because we like ourselves, which makes it harder to die to oneself and live for Jesus Christ. And the word for race in verse 1, it's very interesting. It transliterates as agony agony, telling us that the race of life as a believer in Jesus Christ, it's not going to be easy. There will be pain. There will be exhaustion. There will be opposition. And we don't know where the path God has given us will take us. We don't know how long the path that he's given us will be. We don't know whether it's going to be uphill or downhill, whether it's going to be smooth living or it's going to be rocky. But faith is trusting God during this uncharted course, knowing that he has a specific course in mind for your life designed to bring you in stronger faith to him. So the message is get rid of any of that doubt and run your race. And you'll be the most successful if you keep your eyes on Jesus Christ. Verse two. This is what he says. He says, looking unto Jesus, the author and finisher of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despised the shame, and has sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. The race 
each of us is given to run. It's not our own. God literally marked it out for us. That's what the Bible's telling us here. God went ahead. God pioneered through and he marked it out for us. We run for Jesus Christ. We don't run for ourselves. And so we always have to keep him in sight. It is literally this simple. If you look away from Jesus Christ, you're going to trip. You're going to stumble. You're going to fall. It's that simple. If you look at yourself as you run, what happens? You're not looking ahead at Christ and you stumble. If you look at your problems, you start looking down at your shoe being untied or you start looking at all your problems. Your focus becomes on those problems. You're not looking at Christ if you're looking at your problems and you will fall as you run. You see, when we take our eyes off of Jesus, we begin to sink just like Peter did when he walked on the water. Jesus is both the founder and finisher of our faith. Dig into these words on your own study. It's impressive. He's the author of our faith. He's the captain of our faith. This idea of faith in God, it did not start with man. Man didn't sit around one day and say, hey, I got a great idea. Let's have faith in God. It started with God. He's the one who went first. He blazed the trail for us. He's the finisher of our faith, meaning on the cross, he both began and he finished the work of redemption and the work of reconciliation. He is the one who takes each believer from justification to glorification. Men are saved by him. Men are sustained by him. So if you want to finish your life, well, look to Jesus. All you have to do is follow him. See, the point of this verse is actually to tell us Jesus Christ has done everything needed for us to be able to endure in our faith. What did he do? Well, he actually focused, notice that, on the joy that was set before him. He could have focused on his suffering on the cross. That's what the author's saying. He could have sat there and thought about his pain. He could have thought about all the humiliation as God the Son that he was going through. But Jesus didn't do that. He looked forward. He looked to the reward that would come if he suffered for you, for me. He looked forward to the salvation of lost men. He looked to the time when he would sit down at the right hand of the Father. He looked forward to his victory over death, his glorification, his coming reign. It motivated him. And his example, boy, it should motivate us. And if it doesn't, I encourage you to check your heart. All right, verse 2, it tells us that Christ, he despised the shame. The shame of what he suffered at the hands of men. Boy, the cross was such a shameful way to die. It was degrading. It was humiliating. It was the lowest form of capital punishment reserved for slaves and criminals. But it was nothing compared to the shame that Jesus suffered when he took on our sins. And then those hours of darkness where he was actually separated from the Father. You see, your Savior, he knows how to suffer more than you could ever know. He knows But remember the words of Isaiah 53, 7, predicted of the suffering Messiah. It says, he was oppressed and he was afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth. He was led as a lamb to the slaughter and as a sheep before its shears is silent. What? So he opened not his mouth. He is the example. Even when we suffer, follow his steps, learn to suffer with his grace, suffer looking forward to the reward. For the son of God, joy came from obedience when he submitted to the will of the father. And Paul told us about this when he wrote Philippians 2.8. He said that Christ humbled himself and became an obedient to the point of death, even what? The death of the cross. 
Boy, the cross was a place of shame, but it became a place of victory and a source of joy to the Son of God. By the strength of Jesus Christ, Christians are to suffer with this same joy. Nothing you will go through in life will compare to what our Savior suffered. We run the great race set before us because we see Jesus. He has been down this course. He knows exactly how it should be run. He's gone ahead, and so now he can guide us. He can direct each step. Look to Jesus, knowing the reward will come when we finish the race set before us, if we run the race by faith. Now, how could the Lord Jesus suffer with joy? How could he? On the cross, humiliated before his own creation, how could he? He could because he knew that nothing he was facing was actually a threat to him. Hear me on that. He knew the coming glory. Believers who understand this little principle right here in this text, believers who understand our security and our future with Jesus Christ can run the race with the same type of joy. Not threatened by anything that this world can do to us because Jesus Christ and Jesus Christ alone is to be our constant and steady focus. In 1911, Roald Amundsen became the first person to lead a successful expedition to the South Pole. Amundsen was also famous for his incredible commitment that he had to prepare for his expedition. While in his late 20s, he traveled from Norway to Spain just to better equip himself at sailing. The year was 1899. This was nearly a 2,000-mile trip just to get better at sailing. He didn't take a horse. He didn't take a train. He didn't take a boat. He didn't take a ship. He biked. He literally pedaled so he could train. And then he experimented with eating raw dolphin meat. That does not sound appetizing to me. But he did it on purpose to determine whether he could use it as food. He figured that one day he just might be shipwrecked and he might be surrounded by dolphins. And so he wanted to know if he could actually eat them and survive off of dolphins. It was all a part of years of building for his mission by training his body and learning from the experiences of what worked and what didn't. He even came up north and spent time with the natives close to the Arctic, learning to survive in the ice and the cold. He learned about sled dogs. He learned to dress in layers, to wear loose layers of clothes. He systematically thought of anything he could, and he practiced and he trained for every conceivable situation that he could face on his trip to the South Pole. Because here was his thinking. You don't wait until you're in an unexpected storm to discover that you need more strength and you need more endurance. You don't wait until you're shipwrecked to determine if you can eat raw dolphin. You don't wait until you're in the Antarctic to learn how to handle the dogs and learn how to ski. Instead, you prepare with intensity all the time so that when the conditions turn against you, you can draw from a deep reservoir of strength. And honestly, I think this is one of the principles that the church of Jesus Christ is missing today. This is what a lot of Christians are missing. See, Christians in the modern Western culture in the United States of America have not learned to walk with Jesus Christ during the good times so that they can learn to draw on his strength in the bad. And it breaks my heart to see Christians walk around without joy, without faith when they struggle because they haven't learned this. But Jesus, he opened the way. He opened the way for us to each of us walk by faith all the way to our reward in heaven. And if you want to finish your life well, look to Jesus. Verse 3. 
says this. It says, for consider him who endured such hostility from sinners against himself, lest you become weary and discouraged in your souls. The text is here. This text is here for a reason. It is actually because the first century Christians and every believer since then likes to overestimate in their minds how bad their own situation is. Do you guys hear that? Every Christian likes to overestimate how bad their situation is. We like to think that we have it the worst. Woe is me goes the mindset. And if you understand what the Bible is actually teaching here, then you know that no matter what you face, you can walk in his strength and his joy and his peace by what? Faith. By faith. See, no one ever said life is going to be easy. If you got that message from your parents, I'm sorry, they were wrong. We all will suffer one way or another. To become weary, to become discouraged in your souls is to not focus on Christ, but it's to focus on yourself. It's to focus on your problems. It's to focus on all that's going wrong in our lives. And friends, guess what? That's when mental depression kicks in. And then that spiral kicks in and it makes you sick and it can wear out your body. You see, when you find yourself facing a hard time, when you find yourself wanting to let go of your trust in God, when you want to believe the lie that God has forsaken you or that God doesn't really care about you anymore, look to the place where they tortured Jesus Christ. Look to the cross and find courage to keep going. You've never faced the pure evil, the type of pure evil that our Savior did. And the author is telling us, compare your life to Jesus Christ. He was ridiculed. He was whipped. He was beaten. He was spit upon and he was crucified. If you think he got it bad, consider Christ. Consider all he went through, not for himself, but for you. Add it all up, the author is telling us, all the suffering and how he still lived with joy looking to the reward. So let that strengthen you. Let that encourage you because the author is telling us that we haven't suffered nearly as much as Jesus Christ. And then verse four, you have not yet resisted to bloodshed, striving against sin. None of the Christians that were first reading this letter had yet died as a martyr for their faith like their savior. It could come and it would come, wouldn't it? It would come, but don't stop now. For them, this meant to keep on resisting the opposition to the faith up until the point of death. And by point of application, we are to resist the sin nature until the day we die. The temptation to give in is always going to be there. I'm sorry to break the bad news to you. The temptation to give in in our faith is always going to be there until the day we die. But the message is stay in the fight. Keep the faith until the day that God takes you home to glory, knowing that God allows things into our lives that will cause us pain. Sometimes it's to chasten us and discipline us, but sometimes it's just because he wants to purify us. and wants to draw us closer to him. What happens is we get comfortable. See, we get towards the end of the race and we think we can coast, but you don't see that in a marathon, right? At the end of the race, that's when you got to fight the hardest. That's when you got to go harder. That's the way to move past the sin in your life and become all that God created you to be. So don't deny the pain of the race you're in. Don't blame it on others and don't run away from it. Embrace the pain of life and keep running the race of faith, knowing that Jesus Christ is waiting for us right at the end. A freight train was loaded down with 96 cars and it was rolling through Lafayette, Indiana. And the train was moving at about 24 miles an hour. 
And suddenly the conductor of the train, Robert Moore, he spotted an object on the tracks roughly about a city block away. And at first the train engineer, Rod Lindley, he thought it was a dog on the tracks. But then Robert shouted out and said, that's a baby, that's a baby on the tracks. And sure enough, the baby was 19 month old Emily Marshall. Somehow she'd wandered away from her home while her mother was planting flowers in the backyard. Well, Rod hit the brakes as much as he could and Robert bolted out of the door and he raced along that ledge they got in the front of those train engines and he realized there was actually no time to be able to jump ahead of the train and grab the baby. So he ran down the steps as fast as he could and then he squatted at the bottom of the front engine grill and he just hung on for dear life. And as that train drew closer and closer to Emily, just at the last second, she rolled off the rail onto the train bed, but she was still in danger. She was still close enough. She was going to get hit by this train engine. So Robert, he stretched out while hanging on. He stretched out his leg and with a soft kick to her back, he pushed her out of the way. And then he jumped off the train, picked up the little girl and a little Emily. She only ended up with just a cut on her head and then a swollen lip. But here's the point. Sometimes God has to kick us to protect us from sin. Because just like little children, we don't see the big weight of our sin bearing down on us. We don't see it coming. Jesus has set a race before every one of us, each of his people. It's the race he thinks that you need to make you more like him. So don't fight him on it. Don't fight him on it. Run the race. Don't complain about it. Run the race with endurance. Sometimes it feels like we're being kicked in life, but faith helps us to understand what God allows into our lives is done for a purpose. It's done for his glory. And when we become weary and when we become tired and discouraged, we let our eyes drop and we look away from Christ. And it's then that our faith weakens. So do yourself a favor, friends. Get rid of those things in your life that are holding you back from running the race. Get rid of those things that keeps you from your eyes being on Jesus Christ and always look to him, the author and finisher of our faith, waiting for the day when we will stand together with him at the finish line. Amen. Return to the Word Ministries is committed to teaching the full counsel of God's Word and the gospel of Jesus Christ. For more about our ministry, please visit returntotheword.com. Return to the Word is a faith ministry. This means we freely distribute the teaching of the Word of God over the air and online. We do this without charge. If you feel led to support the ministry with a donation to help cover these costs, you may do so on our website, returntotheword.com, or by mailing a donation to Return to the Word, P.O. Box 879-259, Wasilla, Alaska, 99687. Thanks for listening, and we pray that the Word of God will be a lamp unto your feet and a light unto your path. Join us next time for another edition of Return to the Word.